Okay, hello everybody. Uh, we're back again uh, for the second part of our uh, podcast on the Dutch multidisciplinary guidelines in Achilles tendinopathy. For those of you who missed part one, uh, we're going to recommend you to jump back and uh, listen to that one first. In the first part, we discussed the process of making the guideline, a huge amount of work done by Robert Chan and the guideline team. We went over risk factors, prevention, clinical diagnosis and imaging, and then brought that one to a close. So uh, well worth a listen. This one is going to be covering treatment, both conservative and surgical, and then briefly looking at prognosis and secondary prevention. So still loads to go on in this one. And uh, let's jump straight in then and start talking about treatment. So as a guideline group, you've thought long and hard about this, looked at all the evidence. So you want to tell us a bit more, Robert Jan, about the initial treatment for Achilles tendinopathy? Yeah, so we finally recommended uh, education, load management advice, and exercise therapy for the calf muscles as cornerstone for the treatment of Achilles tendinopathy. And how we came to that, uh, that's uh, also again with uh, the process we know from systematic review. So we performed uh, a living systematic review with NetMERP meta-analysis uh, with the aim to compare different treatment options. Uh, so we were able to include 29 randomized controlled trials in this field. And uh, these had a total of 38 uh, treatment options. Whoa, 38 different treatments. I get, yeah, thinking about daily practice, it probably does reflect daily practice that people come to you having had or having considered all different kinds of treatment. And you see that back in the literature then, do you? Uh, we do. And this, this was for the mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy, but only two for the insertional. Um, okay. So that's a little bit less, but of, yeah, I think in daily practice you can also consider a lot of these for the mid-portion as well for the insertional uh, yeah. So a lot of treatments being looked at out there, and, and how about, we're both a bit evidence nerds, <laughs> what, what about the evidence, what, what did that look like? Yeah, so all studies had a high or unclear risk of bias, so there were no studies with a low risk of bias. Uh, and this limits the strength of the recommendations that can be made. Uh, so, yeah, the main finding was that active treatment seems superior to wait-and-see policy, uh, and that was for mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. Um, yeah, and as there is a clinical important difference between all active treatments and a wait-and-see policy, the working group recommended applying a form of active treatment for okay so that's that's practical advice straight off the bat there so we don't say to patients just just wait and see how it goes yeah yeah okay and then uh, the moving on so we're gonna do something better than doing nothing and you mentioned already the three cornerstones education load management and exercise therapy perhaps we drill down on those a bit what when we say education, you want to break that down for us? Yeah, so uh, the, the term education is used to cover the, the exchange of knowledge between the healthcare provider and patient in, in an interactive way. Um, yeah, and uh, the problem is that the effects of patient education have not been uh, reported separately. And we think that in all these included RCTs that it will be hidden somewhere, but not explicitly described or reported. So 
I think most of us will do this in any way in, the, in clinical practice. And we uh, thought as a work group that uh, patient education for Achilles tendinopathy has three important elements. So the explanation about the condition, the explanation out about the prognosis, and also addressing psychosocial factors. Okay, so uh, clinical pearls there. Education is the exchange of knowledge. I guess we're hoping that we're educating you, the listeners, but this is talking about clinician-patient interaction. And then you've got talking about the condition, explaining the prognosis, and addressing psychosocial factors as being very important in, in the educational aspect of the, the initial treatment. Um, and then load management, I, that's a separate thing than education, but it also entails some kind of education. You want to explain to us the, the concept of load management? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so it, we defined it as a separate topic. It's, uh, it's indeed also education. Uh, but we think it's important to yeah, to really stress this, uh, and yeah, it consists of of a temporarily replacing pain-provoking loads with non-provocative loads, and then gradually increase that sports load uh, and use a pain scale to monitor that load. Um, so that's what it basically means, and. Um, we also stress the importance of patients being uh, being active in the, the rehabilitation, uh, but also avoid too rapid progression of tendon loading activities, um, so to to prevent flaring up of pain. Yeah. So and then let's make that even more concrete. You know, I like running and have struggled with my Achilles tendon for the last fifteen years. So, in terms of that load management, how would we explain that to someone in practice, or in this case, to me, when we're speaking about running? How how should we approach that? So in that case, uh, I never provide you advice. I did I? <laughs> That's why I'm still still got my problems. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, I think here, uh, I wouldn't say someone has to stop running in this case, uh, but I think uh, it, it is a, a challenge to look for uh, a load where, well, the, the pain is within acceptable limits. And we define this as uh, a, when we use a pain score from 0 to 10, uh, with 10 being most extreme pain, then well, we would at least be below 5. Um, and it could be for you that, uh, for example, if you normally run three times a week 10K, that it would be now uh, three times a week 2K. And if that's, well, the load that the tendon can uh, handle, then from there you can try to gradually increase the load in uh, the several weeks and also monitor it with that uh, pain monitoring model. So yep. if pain does not increase, if morning stiffness does not increase over the weeks, and then you know that, well, at least you can further uh, progress. Now, ah, that's great practical advice. And uh, hopefully that'll be the key to me uh, finally getting <laughs> myself better. But uh, now on, a, on a, a serious side, I think that's that's really good on the load management front. And then the third part of the, the initial treatment is then exercise therapy. What does exercise therapy mean in, yeah, in the eyes of the working group? Yeah, so the group uh, recommended to start with uh, some form of uh, strengthening exercises of the calf muscles uh, for a period of at least 12 weeks. 
Uh, and within this period, yeah, symptom improvement can be expected, but uh, most of the times we do not see uh, a complete resolvement of, of symptoms. So I think that's also from uh, uh, yeah, some expectation management, it's also good to consider to share this knowledge with your patient. Yeah, and perhaps we'll consider that then also part of education. We're yeah. going to educate the patients about what kind of treatment response they can expect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we yeah, chose this to recommend this because yeah, the results of exercise therapy seem to be comparable to other non-surgical treatment options. Uh, there are a lot of unanswered uh, questions in this field, so which type of exercise is optimal, which dose is optimal. We, uh, there's a lot we don't know yet, but of course in guideline world we have to make decisions, uh, and that's what we did as well. Yeah, and it looks like in for those of you who are now inspired to crack open the article on open access, you've got a very nice flowchart in there uh, with progressions. Again, it's not super detailed, but it's more, I guess, like a philosophy where you're going from lower load exercises up to higher load exercises. Um, and again, there you may well consider different patient groups who have Achilles tendinopathy in, in the big picture you, you have, say, some inactive people who develop Achilles tendinopathy or the athletic population, and you seem to have covered it all with this table, right? In the... Yeah, I think so. So uh, I think important is there that the approach is the same, uh, but they have another starting point and another end point. Uh, yeah. But still then you can start with this approach, and, and I think the high-level athletes will... Uh, easily step into these isotonic exercises as start, uh, while for the inactive patients it might be a very high load and we have to uh, take a step back or yeah. uh, some more steps. And isotonic, you make me think there of sport drinks. I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you want to just define for us uh, what's what do you mean by isotonic? Yeah, so I think uh, first of all it's good to to explain the difference between uh, isometric and isotonic. So isometric is more the static exercises uh, where people uh, have uh, isometric holds of the calf muscles. And the isotonic exercises is when there is movement of the uh, ankle joints, so uh, plantar flexion, dorsal flexion uh, exercises. Yeah, great. So that's, uh, again, uh, helping me change out the sport drink mode in my head into <laughs> Achilles mode again. So one thing... Um, to also to address is um, uh, that there here there's a difference between mid portion and insertional Achilles tendinopathy. Oh, okay. Uh, you want to break that down for us? Yeah. So there there is very low level evidence showing that exercise therapy uh, performed on a flat surface is more effective when exercises um, uh, are performed past the neutral position of ankle dorsal flexion in insertional Achilles tendinopathy. So. If a patient has an insertional Achilles, Achilles tendinopathy, then they shouldn't go and do their exercises on the stairs or on a step. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's also, I think, from clinical experience, you see that often these patients have a lot of provocation on, uh, on uh, well, the eccentric exercises on the stairs. Okay. Uh, so I, I don't say we shouldn't go there because uh, in the end they also have to... Uh, work towards that function, but uh, first we normally start on the flat surface and then gradually progress to uh, more dorsal flexion range of motion uh, angles. Yeah, 
And it, thanks for thanks for bringing us back to that. And now you brought me back to talking about exercises more. Perhaps just ask your opinion. I know that isometric exercises are a bit of a hot topic in tendinopathy world. They're debated. You've looked at this with some data yourself, and in the in the that flow chart from the article, isometrics are still in there. You want to talk us through the thought process about isometrics? Yeah. So the, the, there has been a lot of discussion about the role of isometric exercises in tendinopathy in general, uh, and I think in the most recent well-designed studies, it is clear that these exercises do not result in more analgesia. Uh, directly uh, when you compare them to isotonic exercises or compare to uh, a control control group. Um, uh, But, well, isometric exercises result in a similar uh, mean level of pain provocation as control groups. There are subgroups of patients who respond well to isometrics. Uh, So I think in that specific group, uh, isometrics might help and it's easy to perform Uh, so in some patients it can help so you can consider progressing from progressing from the from the isotonics to the isometrics back and if they feel they're improving from there then you can still uh, uh, build up to the isotonics again great so it's it's not always uh, necessary, perhaps, if they can already do isotonics? Yeah, yeah. so that's uh, what we also, in the flowchart, uh, we, we detected that, that they can start with a series of isotonic exercises if they feel that's okay within the normal limits of pain. When there's no extreme fatigue, then they can proceed from there. Right. Okay, so now, uh, now back to the, the the secondary treatments. I think. Yeah. Um, um, so the additional treatments in in the guideline, it's defined of if initial treatment fails. I guess then the first question I'd have for you is, uh, how are we going to define a treatment failure? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I think you have to consider it together with the patient. So. Um, and it's also related to that expectation management. So uh, I wouldn't expect a complete resolvement of symptoms at that stage. But if there's really no improvement, uh, then you could consider adding other therapies. And when you say other therapies, we spoke at the beginning of the podcast, there were 38 looked at in practice. How do How do we kind of prioritize that then in in the guideline if we perhaps start with other things we shouldn't do uh, as perhaps the the first thing to consider what aren't we going to recommend yeah so I think then you have to look at uh, well therapies that has uh, have a potential negative effect Uh, so there are specific treatments that we discouraged uh, as a working group uh, and a frequently used the uh, drug therapy is uh, the, the NSAIDs, the anti-inflammatories, and the effectiveness uh, has been assessed uh, in two RCTs, and well, the, there appears no to, not to be uh, an effect in the short term of these medications, and they also interfere with that pain monitoring model. So that's uh, a negative effect, and also, uh, especially in the elderly, it can have uh, gastrointestinal uh, complications. So, uh, yeah. from that perspective, we we provided a negative advice for this therapy. Sure, and I mean, I guess that 
goes a little bit against some athlete behavior with self-medication. So we've, we've got a role there in terms of education as well. So we're, we wouldn't recommend NSAIDs. And then the second, you mentioned the second one? Uh, yeah, the second one, these are the corticosteroid in, injections. Uh, so we are aware of one small placebo-controlled RCT that showed no difference between uh, a corticosteroid injection and uh, a placebo. Uh, and also we know from corticosteroids in general that it is discouraged because of the long-term uh, poor effectiveness. And also these injections have been associated with an increased risk of tendon rupture. Yeah, and we don't want that. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're moving then away from what, what are we going to do to then think about what could we then do uh, how are we going to work through that then in terms of the, the possible next steps? Yeah, so I think uh, for all these potential steps, uh, we know there's a large uncertainty of the estimated additional treatment effect. Uh, so yeah, it is also questionable whether this effect is clinically important to the patient. Um, and as a working group, we also indicate that communication with the patient about the uncertainty of that added value is necessary. So also, again, we have to inform them uh, according to that sharing, uh, uh, shared decision-making model. And as a first potential step, you could consider shockwave therapy, uh, additional to the calf muscle exercises. Uh, and we advised to consider three sessions of shockwave therapy if, uh, well, the three months of initial treatment fails. Okay, so uh, the one step could be shockwave therapy. Um, I'm also curious, and that's perhaps my own bias as well, your PhD project was in part on the use of platelet-rich plasma injections. I was involved in that. You've got a study that showed that they were not efficacious, and yet they're still mentioned in the guidelines. So how yeah. how do we work around that? It was a bit painful, but uh, <laughs> you know, first of all, I think it's important that my perf personal uh, bias should not have an influence on the, on the recommendations. Uh, and also, if we look at the effectiveness of the PRP injection studies, we, we saw two RCTs with conflicting results. So... Uh, taken together, there was too much uncertainty to advise for or against this treatment. Um, and the safety of these treatments is adequately ensured. Uh, there are no serious side effects. There's a good availability. Uh, but on the other hand, the injections are painful uh, and lead to a higher costs. So um, yeah, also this should be taken into account uh, in that shared decision-making process. Yeah. So we've got... The initial treatment, education, load management, and active exercises, let's say three months, potential second-line therapies, if there's an inadequate treatment response at three months, shockwave, and then a plethora of other things um, to be considered. And then at what stage are we going to move on and think about surgery? Yeah, so, so the working group uh, recommended that uh, to be cautious uh, concerning surgical procedures in both uh, mid-portion or in surgical Achilles tendinopathy as there's a lack of high-quality research uh, in this field. Um, multiple surgical techniques have been described and most of them are the 
accession of the peritendinium, uh, a debridement of the degenerative tissue of the tendon uh, in the mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. And for the insertional, it is an accession of the retrocalcaneal bursa or uh, um, an accession of the Hackland's morphology. Yeah, so I guess there it's important that so that the kind of surgery being considered differs as well then depending whether or not it's insertional or, or mid-portion. Uh, so there's not, surgery is not one thing. That's true, yeah. And it's also depending on both the clinical presentation and also the abnormal, abnormalities found on imaging. Uh, so I think that's important there. Uh, and when we should consider these, uh, this treatment, uh, well, we, we recommend that the minimum of period of six months of active non-surgical treatment, so as we spoke about before. But in many cases, 12 months will also be more realistic. Uh, yeah. Sometimes uh, when, when the problems lead to work disability, so in professional sports or heavy physical labor, then heavily physical labor, then you might consider uh, going more into the six months period. Okay, and in in terms of the effectiveness, what can you tell us anything about how effective surgery seems based on the evidence? Well, the, the short answer is no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, I think uh, if you compare, uh, so there, we only have case series uh, of patients treated surgically in this field, and we see more kind of uh, similar improvements in the visa scores uh, when you compare it to non-surgical treatments. But of course, this is, this is a selection problem of patients there, so we really would need... Uh, a randomized trial in this field to be more sure about uh, about the treatment effects. And I guess in, in terms of decision-making, shared decision-making, as you mentioned before, the flip side of the coin, apart from benefits, would be potential risks. When I think about Achilles surgery, I think about uh, problems of wound healing as a potential complication. Is there any data on that? Yeah, so we know from uh, yeah, from multiple trials that wound complication, wound infections are present in around 10% of the cases. Uh, so yes, that's really something to consider. And also, um, yeah, it's hard to estimate the effect of, of surgery. So that's also, I think, you should be honest about uh, when, when you talk to patients that what's really unsure what it will bring for them. Great. So to, to summarize that, then we're considering for the majority of patients 12 months of active therapy prior to surgery, except in the case of potential work disability, so people with heavy physical labor or, uh, or a professional athlete, perhaps. Okay, so that's uh, bringing surgery to a close. And the next section... The fifth module of the guideline is on the prognosis. Um, what can you tell us about yeah, what, how does prognosis work then in daily clinical practice? Yeah, so I think one of the main questions I get in the clinics uh, from patients is, is how long is it going to take? Uh, so I think this information is important. And when we think of prognosis, it, it really depends on the outcome measure uh, one will choose to estimate uh, the severity of symptoms. 
so for example, if we look at um, one large running cohort, uh, we know that approximately two thirds will recover if you ask the question whether they feel recovered, yes or no. But if we choose the Visa A questionnaire, which is a validated outcome measure for this problem, uh, then it seems that only one third reaches normal pain-free activity levels within one year. So the way you define it influences, I guess, what what the prognosis will be. Yeah. And is it possible to identify any patients or groups of patients who have a worse prognosis? Uh, no, no. We only are aware of uh, well some uh, parameters that that have been assessed. Uh, so these are age, gender, BMI duration of symptoms and also ultrasound abnormalities. We know that all these are not uh, important, uh, that these do not affect the prognosis. Oh, that's good news for me, approaching 50, <laughs> but still uh, it's my age isn't counting against me here. So, so they have been examined and found not to be associated with the worst prognosis. Yeah. yeah, I think this is a major gap in this research field because I think if you know more about these prognostic factors, then it will also be... Well, interesting to look whether you have that subgroup of patients having persisting symptoms, whether yeah, there are uh, targets which we could well, uh, better treat in yeah. this specific group. And then I guess that, that links us nicely to the, to the sixth and final module, which is on the prevention of recurrence. So can you tell us a bit more about the prevention of recurrence of Achilles tendinopathy? Yeah, so this is also a field where there's not so much research. So uh, there are no studies that we have identified that reported the effectiveness of uh, preventive interventions for recurrent Achilles tendinopathy. So we only know from a study in professional football players that uh, returning too soon to football is associated with a recurrence. So less than 10 days, then the chance of a recurrence is higher. Uh, so yeah, that makes us feel that, that an inadequate rehabilitation and also an early return to sports might be a risk factor. Uh, I guess that, yeah, that, that would seem kind of logical when we're talking about three months and six months and then... Yeah, returning within 10 days seems, seems, does seem very quick, I would say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so that's also what we uh, provided as a guideline. So it can be indicated that recovery usually takes months instead of days to weeks. So that's, I think, important to take home as well. Yeah. And so in the end, in, in terms of the prevention of recurrence, for practical advice, it's then basically, you, you want to sum that up for us? Yeah, so again here, it's um, uh, a bit related to the primary prevention. You would like to gradually build up the sports loads. Uh, And what we also advise is to use principles of the acute to chronic workload ratio model. So to look uh, back what kind of load uh, has the Achilles tendon been subjected to in the past month and, and what kind of loads will you put on it in the upcoming week, uh, and also monitoring uh, the, the pain level that you experience during uh, loading and after loading of the tendon. So these are, I think, the main guidelines uh, regarding to loading the tendon. 
Yeah, perfect. So I think that might be a good place uh, to to round up the this second uh, podcast. I've had a great time interviewing you and speaking about this. Um, I'd like to thank you for your time and the rest of the working group as well for their time, the considerable time they've put in in making the, the guideline. And we hope that by doing podcasts like this, we'll be able to share the knowledge and the information that you've that you presented to us all in the guideline. Have you got any closing remarks yourself? Yeah, thank you for this nice interview as well. And I also would like to thank... Uh... Well, my team members of the working group who put a lot of effort in this and uh, yeah, I'm really proud of this, uh, uh, this final result and I hope it will be shared a lot uh, throughout the world. Great, well thanks a lot and have a very active uh, day and we'll see you on the next BGSM podcast. Cheers for now, bye-bye. Bye-bye.